When I met today's guest in 2016, he was on a flight from Tanzania to Cape Town. We started chatting about craft beer and the beer book. Little did I know that he was ready to give up his corporate job with SAB in Tanzania to start something in the craft beer industry. Three years later, Tiny Keg Canning was born to offer mobile canning services to craft brewers in the Western Cape. Please welcome mobile canning pioneer Tom Riley to the show. My name is Holger Meyer and this is Drinks World. Welcome to the show. And today our guest is Tom Riley. Tom is the MD of the Tiny Keg Can Company. And as you can hear from the words or the name, it's got to do with cans. And Tom... You have had a long walk with beer. It looks like you worked for SAB for a while and then even for Distel. Tell us a little bit about your background with SAB and how you ended up at SAB. Uh, how's it, Olga? Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on your on your show. Yeah, I mean, I, I joined I joined SAB um, more than ten years ago now. Um, in the UK, so I was based uh, in the working office, and um, my job was mergers and acquisitions. So I was uh, I was tasked with traveling around the world and finding beer companies to buy. Wow, so, that, that uh, sounds like uh, fun. Yeah, so I basically I, I drank SAB beers my entire life, and then my return on investment was uh, was finding a, a proper job, a proper job with them, and. Um, you know, it was an awesome opportunity. I mean, they actually, to be honest, they had they had no right to hire me in that role. I knew less than nothing about corporate finance. Um, I had an engineering background. I'd been in in retail banking of all things in South Africa, um, and then I'd gone over overseas to to study. And um, and out of those studies, I'd uh, I'd managed to meet someone from SAB, meet the right person to speak to, and ended up getting getting this job, which was way above my, my pay grade at the time. Um, but I worked with a, an amazing group of people, and uh, they, they managed to get me up to speed pretty quickly. So, <laughs> And do you think it was because you were South African? Uh, I think it definitely had something to do with it. Like, even if – I don't think it was something explicit where it was like this job is reserved for South Africans or something, but – I was working with mostly other South African guys and all the senior leadership of the business were South Africans. So there was a real shared culture and a shared way of working, you know, which, um, which is very apparent. Um, you know, when I walked into meetings with, with these senior leaders and it felt like, you know, like having a chat with some friends at a bri at home. And I think when, <laughs> When things work naturally like that, then, you know, it just kind of makes sense. And, and so I don't think it was necessarily because I was South African, but I, I, it certainly didn't hurt. Yeah. And what deals did you make? Can you share some of those with us? <laughs> so these deals take a hell of a long time. So you never um, see the end of um, it. <laughs> you never really quite see the end of it, you know. The, and um, the um, also I moved on from mergers and acquisition, I, I was actually really only there for probably about two years, if I, if I think back, um, before I moved more into, you know, I wanted to be in a general management role then with SAB. I, I realized um, once I'd gotten into this, this M&A job, um, 
you know, it's awesome to put the deal together and, and you work sort of on a project by project basis. But, but I realized quite quickly that my, my real passion was for, was for building something. I wanted to be, I wanted to be more involved in building something for a longer period of time. And so I kind of set my sights on a, on a, a general management type of role with SAB and, and so transitioned with SAB um, into, into that sort of space. And so I moved, I moved then from the UK to South Africa um, as an executive assistant, which um, I'm not sure if they still still do those kind of things, but it was you know basically like a, um, a training role um, where I had exposure to some of the most senior people in the South Africa business. Um, and, and they sort of um, put me in various positions. So running sales teams, for example, or, or running a, a, a distribution um, operation, you know, those, those kind of things where you kind of learn the nuts and bolts of the business. Sounds um, to me, so it, it sounds to me as if they really saw a lot of potential in you. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I guess if they didn't, they wasted a lot of money on it. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I had, I had great relationships, um, you know, and, and I got along very well with, um, with all the leaders of the business. So it, it just, it just felt natural and easy. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, you asked, and I, I guess I maybe sidestepped a little bit. But there was one uh, very interesting deal that we looked at um, in Myanmar, and kind of, you know, SAB ended up not doing the deal. Um, another global beer company has done it, and and uh, looking back, it's probably a good thing we didn't do that deal because there, there's some there's some issues there, you know, with the the, the military. Um, the military rulers of that country and so where things were heading in a certain direction you know nine ten years ago when we had a look at the business um they've now gone back in the other direction and i think in hindsight we would have maybe regretted um making that deal yeah. so, so yeah it's really interesting and it, it's great um it's great to be able to look back and have a bit of that context and think about you know the type of decisions we were trying to make and, and how those have ended up working you know down the line yeah Okay, and how did it work out at, at the more general business management stuff? Um, so after another probably 18 months or two years um, in the South Africa business, I was up in Joburg and um, I was running, you know, for example, running sales team um, in Isando and, and learning about selling beer in South Africa and how, how, the, you know, how this market works. Um, I then got an opportunity uh, to join one of SAB's businesses in Tanzania. Uh, it was a shift from uh, beer to spirits. So, so SAB had a stake in a, in a still has in a spirits business in uh, in Tanzania um, called Tanzania Distilleries, and uh, I went up there. And I was there only, unfortunately, only for a year at the end. Um, that was then. Uh, when the, the merger between or the acquisition of SAB by AB InBev um, was sort of finalized. And um, at that stage, you know, I took a step back and had a look at this new business and tried to, I guess, tried to imagine if I was coming from the outside, coming in, you know, would I want to join this business as I had wanted to join the SAB business? And um, and clearly, I decided, <laughs> I decided it wasn't 
you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't exactly right for me. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great business and, you know, obviously it's difficult to, to take over an animal like SAP and it, it can take some time. Um, and I think, you know, um, they've obviously had challenges, but, but it just, uh, it just didn't appeal to me. And, and as you might, uh, I don't know if you remember, Holger, but we met in about 2016 when I was in Tanzania and, um, and at the time I was, I was picking your brain about, um, about the craft business in South Africa and about craft beer, you know, so, so that had actually been on my mind and had been part of my, um, my thinking, my future kind of music, um, for some time. And I think the, the, the takeover of, uh, you know, of SAB by AB InBev and, and the uncertainty that, that came with that, I think was just kind of the, um, the push that I needed um to uh to come back to SA and give it give it a crack to my own thing. I remember that Starting conversation, uh Tom, and I thought, you know, the, you're a bit of a romantic, you know, it's the end of the the first craft beer wave and here's this guy with a proper job and he wants to get into craft beer and I thought, oh you know, stick <laughs> stick, stick with what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean um you know, even if you had told me that, I probably wouldn't have listened to you. But um, as I sit here today, I wonder if it, if it wouldn't have maybe been a good idea. It was very prudent advice, okay? <laughs> your, your pension fund might have been a bit better. Yeah, that is for sure. You know, I think that's um, – and uh, my stress levels were, were, you know, the numbers were bigger, but the stress was lower. Like, I think um, when you – you know, when – with starting something and um, and bringing people into a business which which you've kind of you know conceptualized and 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 pushed into creation, you know it uh, it's extremely stressful and it's 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 stressful because it's so personal. Yeah. You know, um, with a big business, it's always there's always some kind of uh, healthy arms length relationship between yourself and the business, but. But when you started it yourself, it's it's very, it's very difficult to have that. <laughs> yeah, and and you, so after we we kind of met, you didn't stay at SAB much longer. Obviously, it was because of the takeover. And I see you also did a short stint at at Distel. Yeah, so you know, as it turned out, um, I didn't. You know, it didn't take a year. For example, while I had time to to kind of build my next move, or you know, when when I made the decision to leave SAD, um, it all happened. It all happened quite quickly. Um, at this at a, at, a, at a, almost exactly the same time, um, I had a my third my third child, my daughter um, Emily, and um, I needed to take paternity leave. Um, obviously, to help my wife through the process, and we were living in Tanzania, so so you know Emily was born in the UK, and um, I got some resistance from my then manager at SAB. Um, you know, his comment was, "Oh, but you know, it's it's AB InBev. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's going to be feasible." So so that was kind of <laughs> let's say um, the the final the final push. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a case of. of of waiting for months and, and building a plan B, um, it kind of all happened, you know, all that, that all, all happened quite quickly. And um, 
So my wife and I came back to, to South Africa with our, with our family. And it's only really once we landed here that the, the plan for, um, for next steps, you know, kind of really started, um, started in earnest. And um, I was very fortunate then, um, not long after arriving in South Africa, um, to get a call and ask if I was at all interested in, uh, in, in joining or helping Distel. They were looking for someone um, in mergers and acquisitions. So I'd, I'd, I'd left m and um, with SAB a few years before, but I'd, I guess still had some relevant knowledge and, and, um, and network, etc. And so, um, yeah, and so I got, I got an offer from, from Distel. I never, I never um, joined them. I never joined them permanently. I kind of told them from the beginning that, look, I'm, I'm working on this idea and on, on, a, on a plan, you know, to start a business. Um, but in the interim, I'm very, very happy selling my time and, and kind of getting back uh, on the M&A bandwagon, which I, which I did. And I had a great time. You know, I worked with some, some really cool people um, at the style and, and learned, you know, a bit more about the other, other categories of, of alcohol and, you know, whatever in South Africa. So, so it was actually a fantastic um, uh, opportunity for me coming back into SA to kind of really, you know, reestablish, you know, some kind of network and, and, and some kind of understanding of the local industry. So, so yeah, that was great. And I was, I was with, this, I, was, I did that work for them probably for a year or just over a year um, before the, before the tiny cake um, adventure went from conceptual to, to real world, you know, yeah. um, at which stage I then shifted um, to full-time doing what I'm doing now. When when we met on the flight from, you were on a flight from Tanzania, I guess, to Cape Town, you then ended up buying a copy of the beer book. And you, yes. you said off air that that that, beer, that book actually made a difference in your, your decision. Yeah, it really did. And I was, um, I was very aware of the fact that I knew very little about what was actually happening in Prague here in South Africa. And um, you know, I loved working. I love beer. It's kind of my um, my uh, my go-to, and and it's always been a passion of mine. So while I, it, particularly not when I worked for SAD, I didn't really know much about the product itself, um, or, or you know even that much about the process of making it and etc. Um, but I was really keen to stay in beer, and I saw what was happening in craft beer in South Africa as an opportunity maybe to do that. So, so that book really did help me understand the market and start to sort of formulate some some plans around how how we, I was going to approach it or what type of business you know was I going to start a craft brewery um, or was I going to start a, a business in in um, in the service on the service side and. And actually, as I'm talking now, it's just I've just remembered that um, when I paged through your book and I saw at the end of the book there was a list of craft brewers, and then there was a list of service providers to the craft beer industry, and it was uh, it was quite apparent to me that there were a lot less service providers than than brewers, and I think that's actually you know it was one of the, the sort of key data points for for me early on just to to shift my thinking. From, from trying to launch a brand in a in a you know amongst a multitude of other brands um, 
to actually, you know, take a slightly different approach to to entering that that world. Yeah. So, yeah thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to start uh, selling shovels instead of digging for gold. Exactly. That's exactly the analogy we used at the time. So. <laughs> yeah. And when when I was when I was uh, I was, I got a call from uh, another canning line uh, canning company in Joburg recently, and I said to him, I said to him exactly the same thing. In amongst all these four hundred new, five hundred new um, liquor producers, if you think about all the new craft brewers, all the new craft uh, gin makers. There is. There are so many more people that um, have come onto the market in the t last ten years making liquor. I said he's doing exactly the right thing by starting a canning factory instead of trying to compete with with another with, liquor brand. Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I do. I do think so. You know, I think. I guess what I'm I'm learning more and more now is that you know one of if you do have a successful brand, then then you know you you build. Um, some kind of a moat, um, whereas whereas contract packaging, you know, is is uh, I guess you have to you have to constantly reinvent yourself or constantly be be on it. You know, the, um, you you don't kind of you don't get the same strategic uh, um, uh, benefits that a that a, a successful brand would get you, but. On the flip side of that coin, the successful brands are very few and far between. You know, so so yeah. I don't know. I'm still I'm still hoping to find the, the perfect recipe. Yeah. <laughs> in my in my long career in the in the beer industry, I've only had one or maybe one and a half. And the the half was when we launched Bavaria Draft, and it was at a time when SAB was really trying to antagonize every retailer or pub that was selling draft. They hated selling draft and along came these aggressive youngsters and we converted every old castle draft tap into a Bavaria tap with a sticker and uh, a few tools. And the second, and we were quite successful. I mean, we sold hundreds of kegs uh, of Bavaria in KZN in, in those days before SAB woke up and realized, you know, there was something happening. And then the other one was when we when we successfully launched Bavaria Light in KZN, and it was at a time when when the local um, speed cops were very aggressive with the drinking and driving, and everybody seemed to have picked up the taste for Bavaria Light, and we sold tons and tons and pallets and pallets of Bavaria Light. So those were the two really we I managed to be part of a team that was built a successful brand. Um, yeah. So it is very difficult, I guess. It is difficult. I mean, I've, I've seen many, many entries and not that many successes. Yeah. So, and you've really got to stick on it, you know, because uh, it doesn't come doesn't come quick. Yeah. And if you're in the wrong category, it also doesn't help. So I was talking to the guys at one of the craft brewers, and he's probably the biggest IPA. And that wasn't good enough because IPA is such a small category. So he... He was really wanted to be the biggest lager, I guess, and so yeah, there's all these challenges for for the brands as well. So, can you talk? Yeah, and I think that yes, yeah, maybe share with us how your decision making went from from wanting to do something in the craft industry, and then how did you discover canning? 
So I guess it happened over over a couple of years. Um, you know, I'd, I'd actually spoken, um, I think it was in 2015, I was in the UK um, and I'd met um, uh, a craft a craft brewer there, the brand's called uh, Gypsy Hill, um, through, a, through a friend of mine and had a chat to him about his business and, and having a look at what was happening in craft in South Africa. So, I mean, that was probably a good 18 months before I met you. So I was really, I was really kind of intrigued by the craft space for, for, for quite a while before. Um, and, um, you know, what, what, um, what he mentioned to me was, was, you know, he, he had two things that he thought would be, would be great opportunities. And the one was, was a keg rental business, so a keg leasing business. And uh, in, in the UK and the US, you've had to do some, some really big businesses that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other was, was, in, um, was in mobile canning. Okay. And, you know, I then, I then kind of got, uh, got wind of the idea, started having a look and, and seeing that, it, you know, this is what was happening in the USA. Um, I guess everyone, um, and, and more so at that time, I guess we still hope that our, our craft beer market will, will take the path that the US one did. But, um, but I think at the time there was, you know, there was kind of this, this general, um, uh, you know, like a bit of a noise maybe around the, the fact that now the South African craft beer market was on exactly the same trend as, as what had driven US craft beer to 20% or whatever, you know, within a few short years. So, so I was very intrigued by what was happening in craft beer in the US, and, and I actually thought that, you know, the mobile canning was one of the key um, drivers of that um, of that shift that happened in the US, you know, and that, that sort of pushed craft beer um, uh, to where it eventually has ended up. Um, and so, you know, I, I saw that, you know, there were a few, there were a few, let's say, um, key aspects of the of mobile canning, you know, it meant that um, you could get an expert to come in and, and, and someone that, you know, I mean, when you work for SAB, there's there's brewers and then there's packaging people. And, and it's like, it's a completely different job. It's a completely different world almost, even though you're working in the same facility, you know. And um, when you're a craft brewer, you need to try and be expert at all of it, right? At the brewing and the packaging, and, and and then you have to own all the equipment to be able to do all of it. So it was just, it just seemed obvious to me that um, you know someone could come in and and, and bring some real expertise um, to to the packaging side, which is you know frankly as important as the brewing uh, to get right. So um, we uh, you know I did a bit of research about what was happening there, try to understand. Um, how the guys were achieving what they were achieving, and, and doing a bit of research on on that, and so that's, I guess, really where the where the idea of mobile planning first um, first came to me. And then, when coming back to SA, um, you know, after SAB and, and and during the time that I was working with Distel, I started building on on that idea, um, and. Um, I met uh, a guy called Rob Haynes, who I know has been on your podcast in hundred times, and and um, he'd started the League of Beers and was very involved in the craft beer industry at the time with uh, with Yappy Chef, 
And um, and we started chatting and, and, and we met shortly after I arrived back in Cape Town. We got on with each other. And, um, and so we started building this idea um, of starting a mobile a mobile planning business. And uh, I guess that was the that was the genesis of it. Mm, okay. I remember in 2017, I was in Munich at uh, DrinkTech and I met these micro brewery canning people. I think it was Cask. And I thought, there's mm. no way anybody in South Africa, any of the craft brewers in South Africa can or will ever be able to afford a canning, one of these canning lines. <laughs> um, I really well, we have, we have we have two now. <laughs> not cast, but yeah. not the similar. Okay. I actually went um, I actually went to Canada. I think I might have mentioned it to you, but I actually went to Canada um, when when researching um, the canning equipment and, and you know before before importing our first canning line and I went and met um, the family and you know that started and ran that business. They're wonderful people. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really cool trip here. So you you went on this trip to to find the actual equipment. Um, how many are there? Lots of different manufacturers in the states that or in North America that that make these things because it, it surely it's it's on trend now. I mean everybody is doing cans. So I mean at the time there were two really um, let's say standout companies. The one was Cask, um, as you mentioned, and the other was Wild Goose. So those are the two businesses that I visited. Um, you know, there's now a few others doing it, um, and you know, to from what I understand, they've you know they've had some some positive traction. Um, I think for me, you know, at the end of the day, I, I really really um, enjoyed getting to know the folks from Cask, and it was a it was an awesome experience. And I think the, the canning line is great, um, but straight after. After meeting them um, in Canada, I went I went to the US and went to meet the folks from Wild Goose. Um, but I think also importantly, the folks from Wild Goose set me up with a mobile canning company in Denver uh, called Craft Canning. And um, I spent a couple of days with the team from Craft Canning actually out on the road doing mobile canning jobs, you know. Okay. And so I got to see the Wild Goose machine really in action doing exactly what i wanted to do with it um and uh, and it also you know it was also made very apparent to me by the sales guy at wild goose that you know well over 90 percent of the mobile canning companies in the us only use one type of canning <laughs> and um you know given that at the time you know as i've explained i, I didn't come from packaging i don't have a a technical um, beer or, or packaging background. I, I studied engineering at university, but that doesn't make me an engineer, you know. And um, so, so I, um, you know, I defaulted to the, the the option that most of the other guys had chosen, I guess. Okay. And, and that was the wild beast canning line. Yeah. And um, I must be, I'll be honest, it's a it's a decision. I'm, I'm very happy with the, you know, we've built a good relationship with Wild Goose. We're now Tiny Keg on other agents for Wild Goose equipment in South Africa. So, so kind of uh, putting our money where our mouths, in, uh, mouths are, I guess. And, um, and uh, yeah, 
it's uh, the machine has been incredible for us. You know, the fact that it can we can load it onto a truck and and take it off the truck every single day and uh, drive all over. I mean, we've been we we, we you know we we often do canning runs out in Bedarsdorp for for Fraser's Folly uh, and and Black Oyster Catcher wines, for example. So I mean, that's that's a fair distance. We've gone as far as Barrington's in Plett for canning runs, you know. <laughs> But to be able to load all the all the kit up onto a truck and drive it that distance and then take it off the truck and it just works, uh, you know, that's that's a, a pretty amazing proof of concept, I think. So, so yeah. Yeah, you talking that was a bit about that. Yeah, did you Barrington, so with with Hilton Nagel? Yes, that's right. We went to the yeah, Wild Coast with him last year, and he had all these unlabeled cans, and I guess you, you canned those. No comment. <laughs> it was during lockdown. <laughs> it was during lockdown, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but I will say that um, I will say that the demand, we call them blank cans, and I will say that the demand for blank cans um, uh, was very highly correlated with, um, with the lockdown levels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so we saw we saw our business. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating to watch. But how quickly things shifted, you know. And I, I think, I mean, uh, I guess it, it, it was survival, you know, for us um, as a small business. You know, we um, we went from one canning line to two canning lines, and 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 um, and in fact. Um, because there were delays in production and, and we'd already kind of started taking bookings and things. So we, so we ended up air freighting our second canning line um, to South Africa at massive expense. And it arrived uh, in the middle of February 2020, at which point we'd also doubled the size of our team in order to run the second canning line. <laughs> and, um, you know, not six weeks later, we were all sitting at home twiddling our thumbs. So... So it was uh, it was a pretty a pretty hairy time for us as a as a as a business, um, but um, but yeah we you know the the fact that we had some at least you know some demand continued throughout that time you know so so that was so that was great. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your expectations of your business and what what has really happened. Um, I assume you keep talking about craft beer, and I mean, I've picked up that you do a lot of canning for other products. Yeah, so you know, I think um, a few things happened in craft beer. I think on the one side, my let's say analysis or understanding of the industry uh, wasn't what it is now. Let's say um, so. They, you know, I, may, I probably made a few assumptions which were. Um, over generous um, <laughs> in terms of in terms of what the industry looked like and and where it could you know where it was going. Um, I think probably at the same time with the the, the SAB um, you know the ABND acquisition of SAB the SAB strategy towards their premium brands um, changed quite a lot. Um, or and I guess the strategy towards all their brands, but it impacted in particular the premium brands and, and that sort of changed the changed the equation a little bit for for craft producers. You know, at the end of the day it's consumers still making a um, 
uh, an affordability assessment based on you know how much they like your brand and whatever. But you know if they can pick up a, a Stella and, and if Stella's prices decreased by ten or twenty percent, then then suddenly that makes the craft beer you know comparatively ten or twenty percent more expensive and makes it that much more difficult and 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 makes the hurdle that much higher before before you pick up that craft beer. You know? So I think quite a lot of that stuff happened um, at the time. Um, and then, um, you know, there were some the economic woes of, of, of different economic woes to our current economic woes, <laughs> um, which also had an impact. And, and um, you know, craft beer, um, I think the really, really difficult thing uh, in, in craft beer, the, the, you know, the, the, the most challenging thing that I've found is, is actually packaging and distributing a beer. You know, if you can package a beer and sell it out of your tap room, um, that's that's still okay. But um, if you need a, a distribution margin and a retailer margin um, before before a consumer picks it up off the shelf, it's it's extremely difficult to to make a high quality beer, to package it um, at quality, you know, to, to to have a quality packaging, and then be able to distribute it around the country. You know, and that's that's um, aside from the other key issue, which is which is culture. Yeah. Um, you know, so 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 actually maintaining the quality of that beer. You know, and I think that's one of the key differences between craft beer in the U.S. and and how the the sort of hoppier and, and crazier beers, the IPAs and things like that, um, have managed to have managed to gain so much more traction there. And I think a key part of that is the fact that they. That they're that much fresher when they arrive at the consumer because they've been they've been kept in cold chain and in South Africa that's not really a viable option. So these are all things I didn't necessarily understand completely, you know, before I started my journey. Um, but you know, I think one of our key, um, I guess, there's two really key principles, the two most important principles that um, you know that we try to try to hold on to a tiny keg are, are quality and flexibility, you know. And um, from a flexibility point of view, we immediately um, became aware that there was that there was interest elsewhere in, in canning um, and, and in sort of, you know, some lower volume canning, let's say, more flexible canning. And um, uh, I started, uh, you know, attending a lot of meetings um, with wineries that were that were interested in in putting wine in cans, or had been approached by um, by dis- the, you know existing distributors in in other markets, and and you know these distributors were requesting a canned wine product. You know, so even before starting Tiny Cake, I was aware that that wine in cans was a thing and was growing. Um, you know, internationally. Uh, but I always, I guess, kind of assumed that it would take a few years, while well, it will take a few years um, to catch on in South Africa, if it does. Um, and I always assumed that to be the case. But what I didn't, I guess, really see um, initially was that there'd be um, immediate interest in, in exporting these products. Mm-hmm. And um, and given that we based ourselves in Cape Town, you know, there, there's a massive... Um, Producer base here um, of wineries, and uh, and so you know we just uh, 
we had to we went back to our investors and and asked them for some more cash um, to buy change parts and to buy various other bits of um, equipment that we needed to go into wine uh, packaging and um, when you know we we, we sort of we started uh, canning wines um, you know let's say formally we did a lot of trial runs and samples and things like that but probably in about November, October, November um, of what, what was it now, 2019. So we started in February of 2019, the first canning line arrived, and, and then towards the end of that year, we started um, we started with wine. And um, and yeah, I mean, there was immediate interest in the wine, um, and you know, also obviously the the as I said, the craft beer market has shifted quite a lot. Um, so, you know, what our business looks like now, just a few years later, is, is nothing like what we thought it would look like <laughs> when we started, yeah. you know, which is really interesting. You know, I went on this journey, um, and even, even just three years down the line, you know, I couldn't possibly have predicted, you know, what the business would look like at this, at this stage. So. So, so how does it look? Is, is wine the majority of your business? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is the majority of what we do, and you know, I think, um, I mean, I feel like we had we had some impact uh, in 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 craft beer, and if you ever look at, at craft beers now, you'll see how many of them are in can, where virtually none were in can, um, you know, before we started. Um, but what has happened? A few things have happened. I mean, we um, we established a relationship with with Bev Can, um, who've been fantastic partners to us. Um, and, uh, you know, it was always very difficult for, for smaller brewers, um, to even get hold of cans from their can, yeah. you know, they, like they have to send a truck down to Cape Town from, from Joburg. You need to be, you need to be buying out of a lot of cans or have a really big warehouse. If, if you're a craft brewer and, and you want to buy, you know, um, a half a truck or a truck full of cans, but, um, with our sort of, um, aggregation of can demand, you know, we're now able to to offer um, blank cans to craft brewers. So we, when we we bringing uh, or getting a truck from a delivery from Bev Can, and, and a lot of those cans are, are cans that we'll pull, but we also um, sell cans to to other producers, you know, that that aren't taking full truckloads. And so I think that's uh, allowed a, a lot of smaller craft brewers. Um, uh, to shift to cans, I think there was always, I mean, the understanding might not exist so much or might not have existed amongst craft beer consumers, but it certainly did exist amongst the craft beer producers, the understanding that a can is a better package for a beer than a, than a glass bottle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's in combination with the opportunity to brand a can. You know, at the end of the day, one craft beer bottle looks exactly like the next craft beer bottle if you just buy console craft bottles, you know. So um, there's a lot more opportunity to differentiate the look and feel of the product um, in a can, a lot a lot bigger canvas for your brand, let's say. Yeah. Um, I really like what some of the guys are doing on the cans. Eh? Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's amazing. And I think, you know, I, I, feel, um, I feel great that we kind of were part of, a part of enabling that shift, you know. But a lot of um, so a few South African companies started offering uh, local um, local 
let's say canning, um, you know, manual versions of the canning lines and, and, and local canning solutions. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it became affordable for a small craft brewer um, just to, to manually, you know, uh, package their product. And, and particularly, you know, if they, I mean, we've got some, some very expensive equipment where we can assess, you know, whether our packaging is, is being done correctly. So, you know, for example, a device called a, um, a C-Box Anton Parr, um, which can measure dissolved oxygen in mm. beer. And, and, you know, that's the, that's the key factor in determining whether your beer is going to have a decent shelf life or if it's going to taste like a stale biscuit uh, a week later. And, um, you know, we, we invested in this equipment. Like I said, the two things that we really stood on were quality and flexibility. Um, the flexibility I've addressed and the quality issue, you know, the quality was, well, we put our money where our mouths, you know, we, we, we invested behind, um, we wanted to say that we were quality, but also be able to show it, yeah. you know, and, and, and we did that through investing in the, the best equipment that we could. Um, and, and, you know, and I think, so while a small craft brewer doesn't necessarily have access to a, um, to a C-box, you know, if they do their job right, they can still achieve uh, a better results um, with canning than they can with, uh, with with bottling, firstly. And secondly, if they then keep the product close to home, um, you know, try and keep it cold in the fridge, in the tap room or something like that, you, you know, and, and, and not try and send it from Joburg to Cape Town and, and sell it on the other side of the country, then, then they, can, they can really achieve great results, you know, so, so, um, so with that shift happening, you know, if a craft beer, you know, if someone makes a thousand liters of beer and um, they want to put 500 liters in keg and sell it in their tap room and put the other 500 liters in can, um, you know, the, I think that's, that's where a lot of the, the demand in the South African craft beer industry would be, but, but 500 liters is very, very difficult to, to justify you know, if you've got a truck full of expensive equipment and, and you know, we're employing, we're employing people and, and you have to send them kind of around the Western Cape to go and package 500 liters of beer, it's just, it's just not feasible. So I think that you know, we probably weren't flexible enough um, <laughs> for the size of, of, of most of the craft brewers, you know, that, okay. that, we, that we ended up, um, ended up working with, you know. So what 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 is a, a feasible kind of amount? So we'll you know our stated MOQs for a, for a mobile job um, is three thousand liters. Okay. Um, so we you know, I mean we've often done much smaller jobs than that. Um, we have to compensate in in pricing. So we we charge um, per sellable can. So, um, you know, if a can gets dropped or underfilled or something like that, we don't try. We only charge for cans that are, um, are ready to go to market um, at the end of our canning run. And, um, uh, you know, we've had, we had to compensate to do smaller jobs by charging more per can. So we've got a, we've got a pricing schedule. Um, but, you know, it obviously, you know, it just makes it more and more difficult as I've said, it's already difficult to package a beer and distribute it and make any money out of it. So, yeah. 
So obviously, if your if your unit cost goes up, then you know it just becomes more and more complicated. Yeah. Um, and so the the sort of manual canning option, um, man, manual canning line option was a was a great option for for a lot of craft brewers. So are are there a lot of uh, little seamers or what do you call those little canning operations around the Western Cape? Yeah, also quite a, quite a few guys okay. are, are canning their own products. Yeah, quite okay. a few of them. Okay, and and what you are saying is it's really as a result of what you started. I've seen it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think what I was saying. I think what I was saying is is I hope that we played some part in, yeah. in driving that shift. Yeah. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not quite um, arrogant or confident enough to say <laughs> that it was because of what we did. Yeah. But, but yeah, there, you know, there was a global trend happening and I think, you know, we, we just, we kind of played into that trend, yeah. you know, and maybe unlocked a few doors. But yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I saw a brewery or I was told of a brewery who just spent 350,000 rand on a seamer. Is that kind of what you're looking at for a, for a small setup? Um, for SEMA alone, no. Okay. Uh, you know, you can buy a SEMA for a lot less than that. And then you can just use, a, I guess, you know, like a beer tap or something to fill the beers. Mm. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's, um, there, there are a number of options um, which are a little bit more automated than that. So there is, you know, there's like a conveyor belt and a, um, and a full head, uh, which is kind of dialed in and whatever. So it's not just a seamer. Um, so, you know, you do have a, 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 say a canning machine, mm. um, but just one where you kind of manually do, do everything, you know, um, whereas ours is, is a little bit more automated. Okay. Tom, what else are you seeing? Are you experiencing a demand for canning from other beverage categories? And I'm thinking specifically, and I'm thinking specifically of something like hard seltzers. Yeah, so I think there's absolutely the, that um, that trend is is um, is very much happening right now. Um, we um, have recently, um, you know, taken quite a big step um, for for a small business, and and we. We went back to our investors and and um, and we've invested again in a in a packaging uh, facility. So we now have, you know, our own tanks and cooling and carbonation and uh, and the wet floor, um, you know, where we can operate um, and enough space to store all our cans and things. We were originally sharing a 160 square meter warehouse unit in Deep River, and uh, it. You can't store a lot of cans in, in half of 160 square meters, so we ran out of space quite, quite spectacularly and quite quickly. Um, but yeah, so we recently moved um, to a much, much bigger space, and um, and the reason for doing that is, is exactly what is exactly what you said. You know, there's there's demand, um, I think, for for these new kind of drinks. Um, whether they, you know, just the hard seltzers or the, I guess, the low-calorie kind of um, sparkling products. And um, there's also, you know, within um, within canned wine in, in the U.S., for example, you know, a big part of that category um, is carbonated wine. Um, and then, you know, even other subcategories, so, so sort of seltzers, which are 
are wine-based instead of being ethanol-based. So you've got a, a, a completely different flavor profile, um, you know, and it's much lower alcohol, let's say, than, than, than a, than a full-bodied wine, a, a full wine, so it's kind of wine and, and water, um, with a bit of a flavoring, and that's then carbonated. You know, but I guess um, the point is that, that there are a lot of the it was apparent that there was demand or interest from a number of producers in launching these types of products, you know. Um, and so again, to stick with our, with our flexibility model, um, you know, Tiny Keg wanted to be able uh, to service that demand for our customers. You know, we thought, you know, um, to be able to offer both mobile canning as well as, um, in facility canning, um, still beverages, carbonated beverages, you know, um, mixing of those products. Uh, so all of all of that, um, you know, so we can now we can now do all of those different things. Um, but we initially started working with um, some craft brewers who were customers of ours, for example, and then we would. Uh, I guess, you know, the, the craft, the brewery would do the mixing and the carbonating and the cooling of the product. And then we would arrive as a mobile canning um, company just to do the packaging. Um, but that gets very complicated. You know, there's, there's a lot of parties uh, responsible for delivering a product at the end of the day. So, um, so it wasn't really a sustainable way of doing it. And, and we decided to move into, into our own facility. Okay, and, and, uh, which, and which we've recently done now. Yeah, I saw that on social media. And does that mean you still using the the mobile equipment, but just on that uh, specific day you using it in your own warehouse? Correct. Okay. At this stage, you know, I think I think um, you know we've got a number of um, a number of options in terms of our next steps. Um, but I think you know that's obviously the the key part that the key thing we would look at. But um, you know we made the decision to to get the facility up and running. Um, you know, so I guess it's just a, it's just a lot more capex all at once. You know? Yeah. Um, so we got the facility up and running, and we're now you know sort of mobile in house. Um, but I guess then the next step is is you know, to either have a fixed line, yeah, or, or you know, some, some different um, solution. Yeah. yeah. And Tom, your wine customers, do they, do they prefer having it mobile or do they, could they send their tanker to your facility and have it canned there? So they can do both. Um, you know, it's one of the, I guess, one of the, the elements of flexibility that a wine producer has that a, a beer producer really doesn't, you know. Uh, craft beer needs to have their own uh, carbonating tank, carbonation and cooling and, and pressure vessels and, and all of that. Um, a lot of wineries use mobile bottling companies. So the, the concept of mobile packaging in the wine industry is very well understood um, because of the, the way that the bottling gets done. Um, you know, so that sort of supports the, the mobile element. Yeah. But then a lot of other producers, um, you know, prefer prefer just to get the just to get the product um, 
completely done elsewhere. And there's also um, quite a lot of brands which are not traditional wine farms, right? So someone creates a brand, they source products, um, you know, they, they maybe have a winemaker or they are a winemaker and they, they create a product um, without necessarily having a wine farm or having production facilities. And the same exists in the sort of seltzers and all those other 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 products where a full contract packaging um, option um, is you know is actually required um, because you don't have your own floor, your own space, your own tanks, etc. You know. Okay, makes sense. And so now we can you know we can do carbonated wine, we can do wine-based mixed drinks, we can do. Um, you know, we've uh, invested quite heavily in in water treatment, so we, we reverse osmosis uh, filter our water. We then de-aerate the reverse osmosis water, so we can, you know, so that we can make sure that we have um, again a good quality um, mix um, going into the can um, at the end of the day. But um, so we, you know, we can now offer all of those. We can now offer all of those options. But if we talk about beer again. You know, the, Joburg and Cape Town are the two cities in the world where it's the cheapest for tourists to buy um, a mainstream or a premium beer. Uh, on a dollar basis, we are the, the cheapest <laughs> premium beer in the world, you know. So if you want to launch uh, a craft brand into that space, you know, the, the, it, it's extremely difficult. Mm. Um, and um, so what we're seeing is that a lot of our demand is for export markets and particularly so on the wine side. Um, but, you know, a, a, a can of, a can of wine, um, a can of South African wine in the U S you know, can easily sell for, you know, four or $5. Um, you're not going to sell that can of wine for $5 in South Africa. Yeah. You know? Um, so, so, so there are very different economics at play, and, and I think you know at this stage, um, at this stage, most of what we do is going overseas. Well, that makes the whole um, business even more exciting. I think it's it's wonderful that you've stimulated something that you you didn't intend to do, and uh, that uh, it's creating foreign currency. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's. You know, we we still are a very small. No, it's not just in our name, but we still are a tiny company. <laughs> and um, you know, but 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 it's it is um, it's really awesome to see brands that never existed. You know, and some of our customers, um, you know, have sent I don't know like five six containers of product overseas. And you know, I remember meeting meeting these folks a couple of years ago, and they had you know, a few kegs of, of sort of mixed drinks and, and, you know, one keg of wine or whatever. And we were, we were kind of, you know, packaging it, packaging it for them on the, on the pavement outside our, our previous facility, you know, cause we didn't have the, the, the capacity there doing sample runs and things, you know, and, and these are now, these are now companies that have, have exported, you know, multiple container loads of product. Um, um, you know, to different markets around the world. And so that's really, really cool to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Tom, thanks for for sharing your story with us today. It's it's really, I mean, we've seen the product come up to especially Hillcrest Quick Spa here. We've seen a lot of your cans come here sometimes on a, on a whole container load, and I think. Um, I like cans. I'm a big advocate for cans, and um, it's really exciting. And I, and I'm I'm really tough to hear your story, and that I played a small part in it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aldo. Yeah, we, it's been really interesting to chat. I know we could probably we could probably keep chatting for another hour. There, you know, once you once you scratch under the surface, there's so much <laughs> that's, uh, that goes into that goes into putting something like this together. You know, yeah. but. Um, but now we, um, you know, we as Tiny Kega, I think we're going to keep, you know, keep to our to our values and stick to our guns, and then um, you know, try and stay flexible and and ensure the the best quality we we're able to. And and uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully we can have another chat like this in a few years' time. <laughs> yeah, I'll we'll certainly hook up when on my next trip to Cape Town, and you can show me the the new facility. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.